Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Welcome to the show. As you may notice, I am not Dave Popovich or Faisal Carmelli. My name is Rob Geary. I'm an investment advisor with the Popovich Carmelli Advisory Group. And I, I work with the guys. I am a solo host today, so go easy on me. But we do have a packed show today. We're talking about the interest rate hike that just happened here. We're talking about inflation, current CPI numbers, shelfflation. So we'll talk about that and tax loss selling, what that means on if you're going to be making money or not this year. So let's get right to it. We have uh, we have Benjamin Tall, Deputy Chief Economist at uh, CIBC World Markets. Benny, how are you? Excellent. How are you? Good. Good. Great. There's been a lot to unpack here with the inflationary print this week. Uh, can you break down what happened with that interest rate hike and recently uh, what happened and the impact it is going to have? Yes, uh, what uh, it means, it means one thing, that the Bank of Canada means business and the Bank of Canada wants to know that it means business. Namely, you have a situation in which uh, if you give the Bank of Canada two options, one is a recession, the other is inflation expectations rising, they will take a recession any day. They are willing to take this economy to recession just to make sure that inflation remains subdued and expectations remain low. That's their goal. For 50 years, the Fed and the Bank of Canada have been laboring very hard to establish their reputation as inflation fighters. They are not going to toss it away. So the fact that the Bank of Canada raised interest rates by 100 basis points, more than what the market expected, means that they want you to know that they mean business. Well, you know, it's it's it was a little bit shocking to people, right, <laughs> that uh, they raised that much. So, what are what are the central banks currently doing, and what do you think that they should be doing? Well, they are raising interest rates, and they con- they have to continue to raise interest rates, quite frankly, because of course inflation is uh, way too high. Now, we have to remember, and that's very important for the listeners to understand, that the Bank of Canada cannot control sixty or maybe sixty five percent of inflation. So you have 8.1% inflation, 60% of it is outside the scope of the Bank of Canada because it's coming from outside. It's coming from Russia, it's coming from supply chain, we know the story. So they can raise interest rates to the sky, they cannot impact that, but they can impact wages, they can impact the consumer, clearly they can impact the housing market and that's exactly what we're seeing. So the fact that inflation is starting to stabilize and the numbers that we got at 8.1, although high, much better than expected, means that it's starting to work. We have seen a situation which um, inflation in housing starting to slow down and the food even was better than expected. So overall, I suggest that maybe we are very close to peak inflation, but it will remain elevated for the next few months. But one thing to remember, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is not about inflation. Two or three years from now, inflation will be back at 2%. It's about the cost of bringing inflation back to 2% in terms of higher interest rates. That's the reality. Do you think, I, I know that there was an interview today um, earlier this week on from Tiff McClellan to saying that he expects inflation to continue at around 7% throughout the end of the year. Is that more commentary 
to kind of put pressure on uh, the consumer? No, no, inflation will remain elevated, although from 8.1 to 7, you're starting to slow down. But you're slowing down very, very slowly. You're not accelerating to 10%. That's the point that he was trying to make. If you look at the year-over-year rate and where we are now, where food prices are, energy prices, uh, clearly you have a situation in which inflation will remain elevated for the remaining of the year. Now, um, remember, supply chain is still an issue. How do we know that? You look at... uh, car sales and their prices they're still rising and therefore we don't have all the components that we need Uh, and that's something that will keep uh, inflation elevated but we have to remember one thing the supply chain story is all about covid all about covid and if you believe that uh, 2022 is a transition year from a pandemic to an endemic then it's reasonable to assume that a year from now you and i will not be talking about the supply chain the way we are talking about it now right Right. Uh, so again, and maybe just can retribute that. How much do you think that interest rates will actually increase? I think that we are very close to the end. I think that the Bank of Canada will move by another 75 basis points and we'll call it a day. The Fed is behind the Bank of Canada, so the Fed will have to move more. But uh, both central banks will uh, reach uh, what we call terminal rate at 325, maybe three and a half and call it a day, and then wait and see what happens. What has to happen in order for them to stop is the supply chain story to start behaving. Namely, we have to see a situation which, because of the reduction in COVID uh, risk, supply chain prices will start easing. China will open up. Things will come into our border much faster. That's the hope. That's the prayer. And if we get that, then they can end at 3.325. Now, even at this rate, it's possible that they will take the economy to recession. But I believe that this recession, if you call it a recession, will be relatively mild. So, and I, I know you had some some commentary in your piece that uh, you recently did too on your expectation of, or the likelihood of recession, that you were more saying 40 to 45%. I know the bond is bond markets pricing in similar. So how, how likely do you think the recession is? You know what? I'll tell you the truth. I'm not very interested in that. I'll tell you why. Because this is just a question of uh, definition. What is a recession? Some people will say recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. I'm saying no, it's more than that. You can get two consecutive uh, negative growth, uh, quarters of negative growth, without a recession, in my opinion, if the labor market is untouched. You cannot have a recession and call it a recession without, without the unemployment rate rising. And you look at the labor market now, the opposite is happening. The unemployment rate is too low. And uh, we are searching for labor, we cannot find it. So therefore, I'm not really interested in recession, no recession. I'm interested in, okay, how severe it's going to be. And if it's going to be relatively mild, then call it a recession or not, it's really not important. What would a recession, in, in that regard, what would a recession look like if this is more of a just a technical recession? Yes, I, I don't think that uh, most people will feel it in a very significant way because their job will be there and that's the number one factor. As long as the labor market is okay, then this recession is, you know, we can deal with it. You will sit in the housing market, you, co- you will sit in consumer spending. People will go less to restaurants because they have to pay more on their mortgage, but their job is there. The number one factor and the number one casualty in every recession is the labor market. But if you have your job, you can take it, and I think that's the way to look at it. What uh, you know for the for for the general listener, there's there's two people. What does it what does it mean for the general consumer if a recession happens? 
Depends, you know, if you if you are in the mortgage market and your job is secured, you're actually benefiting from that because interest rates will be going down to fight that recession. So actually, you will be benefiting from that. I think um, talking about the recession now in terms of the impact on people uh, is not going to be as significant as the 91 recession or the 2008 recession. You will not feel it in a very significant way. So it will be a mild recession, something like 1995 that most people didn't feel. It was more kind of a media recession as opposed to real life recession. So I suggest that... um, you really will not feel much of a difference. Now, if for some reason inflation continues to go up and the Bank of Canada has to continue to raise interest rates to three and a half, four, four and a half, that's a significant risk in which you are going to damage the economy, the housing market so much that you will have a more severe recession that eventually will impact the labor market and that will be a real recession. Benny, we were talking before about, you know, interest rates and what that meant and the inflationary uh, pressures that are, you know, being put on everyone here. Let's get back to recessionary concerns because I know that word, you know, scares people a lot and they don't know what that actually means. We were talking that a little bit. Maybe you can tell us what a soft landing means. Well, a soft landing means that you end up uh, with positive GDP growth and you don't get into technical recession. Uh, That's what a soft uh, landing means. And in order to get there, the Bank of Canada has to be perfect. I suggest that the probability of a recession is 50-50, but I really don't like to discuss it because, quite frankly, it doesn't make much of a difference. As long as the labor market remains strong, you can talk about recession as much as uh, you want, but it's really not going to impact the average person. A real recession must impact the labor market. You need to see the unemployment rising, people fearful for their job. That's a recession. And that's something that we have to be concerned about. But that's not the scenario that we are talking about now. So the difference between a soft landing or a mild recession is not very significant. However, again, if you have a situation in which inflation does not moderate and the Bank of Canada has to be more aggressive, and that's a risk, then you can go into a more significant recession that will impact the labor market. And that's a totally different story. You talk about... um wage inflation and and you know obviously that's a little bit of a lagging factor in this but it's starting to happen and will that exacerbate inflation here again that's the key question because the reason why the bank of canada is so aggressive in terms of raising interest rates is is exactly that because if inflation expectations go up and you believe, and I believe, that inflation next year and the year after will be 6 7%. You go to your boss and say, listen, I want to raise 7% because inflation is 7%. And everybody's doing that. That's exactly what happened in the 1970s. Wages went up exactly uh, in line with the prices and uh, income was more or less unchanged in real terms. Uh, we are not at this situation now because inflation expectations are still relatively muted. People believe that the Bank of Canada will take care of it. They believe that the Bank of Canada will succeed. And the reason why the Bank of Canada raised interest rates so aggressively is to make sure that you believe that that's the case. So that's more or less where we are. So wages are rising, but they're not rising as quickly as um, prices. And if we see inflation starting to stabilize and going down slowly, I think that the inflation expectations will not rise. And without expectations, you cannot go and ask for this raise. Uh, you mentioned before about you know housing market impacts in, in the first segment. 
And, you know, we're seeing that mortgage rates, you know, they're obviously going up. So, you know, for for home buyers and, and people looking for, you know, single detached homes or, or a condo to get in the market, could you go more into detail on how that's affecting the housing market? Yes. First of all, I think that it's important to understand that the housing market uh, craziness during COVID was uh, due to the asymmetrical nature of the crisis because most of the jobs that were lost were low-paying jobs, renters. Home, uh, you know, uh, first-time home buyers, uh, potential buyers, they didn't see their income going down dramatically. In fact, the opposite is the case. So they got the benefit of a recession vis-a-vis extremely low interest rates without the cost of a recession vis-a-vis a broadly best increase in the unemployment rate. That's something that we have never seen before. So you had a situation in which... Uh, there was this sense of urgency to get into the market. So we front-loaded a lot of activity. We stole activity from the future, but the future has arrived, which means that what you're seeing now is just a correction of the craziness that we've seen during COVID. And therefore, this is not a freefall. This is just an adjustment to go back to semi-normal. And that's more or less where we are. That's the nature of this crisis. Most of the adjustment now is in the low rise segment of the market, namely detached houses, the more expensive ones. If you look at the condo market, still doing okay because it's more affordable. So you have a situation in which uh, prices are falling in part because of the compositional factor, namely a situation in which you have less activity in the more expensive segment of the market and more activity in the less expensive, the average price goes down. And we're seeing that obviously more in the bigger markets that have had that huge run up in Toronto and Vancouver. Is that correct? Absolutely. And we saw also in the beginning of the crisis, a significant increase in the suburbs, you know, small towns, uh, 50, 100 kilometers from major cities. People say, you know what, I can uh, telecommute and basically uh, buy a cheaper house. Prices there went up. And guess what? They are the first to correct in this environment. If, if you're a retiree, Let's talk about that. Let's talk about more. If you're a retiree in this market and you don't have carrying cost concerns on rising interest rates, then what should a retiree be looking at in the case of a recession? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, we have to remember that uh, many of uh, those uh, retirees are, uh, you know, relying on uh, GICs and fixed uh, income. And GICs actually are starting to rise, and that's a very good thing. Actually, they are going higher than we have seen in 20 years, and that's actually a very good uh, uh, situation. I would suggest that in the next few months, many people that have some money to put aside uh, and want to live on interest pay rates, look at GICs, because some of those GICs are actually very attractive, and they will not be attractive or so attractive two or three years from now. Because I think that uh, that interest rates will be going down, not up. When you have a seven, eight percent inflation, interest rates are rising, and even if you look at the ten-year rate, uh, it went up, and now it's starting to go down. So we are very close to the peak of some of those GIC rates, and I will actually take advantage of it and lock it because that's more or less where we are. And, and we're looking at that. A lot of people have, you know, government pension sources coming in and OAS and, and, and CPP that go up with inflation as well. Obviously, it's not keeping up with current inflation measures, but people that have that income source coming in, it's actually a good thing over time and protecting them on, on inflation currently. Absolutely, absolutely. And there are other ways of looking at uh, protections through inflation-adjusted uh, bonds, all kinds of uh, tricks that are available there. But again, I suggest that inflation a year or two years from now will not be a major issue. Well, Bunny, it's been it's been great to have you. And again, we were 
joined by Benjamin Tell, Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC World Markets. I'd like to thank you for joining us today, Benny. Based on recent news, it was great to get your take on what is happening out there with uh, the inflationary pressures and with the potential for recession that a lot of people are thinking about and concerned about whether you're in the labor force or not or whether you're seeing your wages increase it is a concern for all of us and especially for retirees again you made some great points there on you know how it can affect them and how they can benefit from that so i thank you again for joining us thank you we've seen inflation take a huge toll on people here especially at the grocery stores which we're all experiencing we're joined by dr sylvain charlebois senior director at the agri-food analytics lab at dalhouse university dr charlebois welcome to the show well thank you everyone is going through this problem it's not something that anyone is insulated to I have young children. I'm I'm seeing it. I'm seeing, you know, shocking prices of $15 watermelons and going, you know, when does this end? How did this start? So we're going to digest all of that because I know that you have a ton of uh, research and, and commentary on this. So I've heard the term shrinkflation a lot when <laughs> you're seeing a bag of chips and going, this is smaller than I remember. But the term shellflation is a little bit new. So maybe we can go into detail on that. Tell us what shellflation actually is. So shellflation is is when uh, supply chain inefficiencies are impacting the quality of products at retail. So uh, sometimes it takes a bit longer for products to get to retail, to get to stores, uh, whether it's because of a snowstorm, because of problems at the border, because of delays labor issues uh, a, a ton of things can happen from farm gate to uh, to store or to restaurants and uh, typically when when there are some disruptions along the supply chain it will impact the quality of the product you have access to as a consumer which will compromise the shelf life of some products especially produce for example all the fresh products that's why we call it sell shellflation because you end up throwing away more products at home and paying for that pro- for those products just because they don't really last as long when when you're at home. So you mentioned you, you know obviously a supply chain, but this isn't the first time this has happened. Oh no, no, it happens all the time. Uh, it's just we notice that uh, there are major issues affecting supply chain since the start of the pandemic for obvious reasons. Uh, of course, uh, with. With unpredictable market conditions, lockdowns, things like that, uh, issues around the world, it's been very difficult for food companies to plan ahead and, and, and basically be ahead of the, the market, essentially. So that's why we've seen more disruptions, more issues uh, since, since March of 2020. So, uh, and, and people have noticed, really, especially, again, at, in the periphery of the store where fresh products were sold. I think it's definitely highlighted now amongst other things um, because inflation is affecting everything. But for grocery stores specifically, how is this going to impact how people shop for food differently? Well, people are, are going to be more vigilant, of course. They'll be looking at a products more more often. They'll, of course, be uh, a little bit more careful with what they buy because uh, typically as grocery shoppers, you, you end up buying 
calories, uh, but you also buy time. <laughs> so you, you often see people reaching reaching out at the end of the at the bottom of the shelf uh, in the back, so you can actually buy uh, products uh, for which the, the 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 best before date is is a little bit farther uh, and things like that. So you buy time as you buy food, and so I, I'm I suspect that. There's going to be more of that. There's been more of that at, at the grocery store, really, and so it's been interesting to watch people how they behave. And of course, the other issue is is nutrition. People may actually stay away from perishable products because of of shelflation, and that's really a concern because you're mas- you're basically making some compromises uh, for for your own nutrition and nutrition of your household. I know that uh, dairy is a big story here when it comes to uh, increased food prices. And and I read your piece on that. It was very interesting to me because we don't know the backstory on that. All we're saying is we need milk and we're going to go and buy it. So maybe you can kind of give us a highlight on on the dairy individually. Yeah, so uh, right now things are calming down at the grocery store. It's not as uh, hectic as it used to. Uh, I mean, the food inflation rate is was was at ten percent uh, effectively, but now uh, it's under ten. Uh, it seems that uh, we're we're seeing the light uh, at the end of the food inflation tunnel, but there is one exception, uh, and that's dairy. Uh, why? Well, we've just had a, a record hike for milk prices on the farm, 8.4%. And now the Canadian Dairy Commission, uh, our Crown Corporation, has decided to increase milk prices by another 2.5% in September when kids go back to school. So what we're expecting uh, on the market is to see dairy product prices go up by 6 7 8% more than what they are now. So... Uh, while the grocery store, uh, we're expecting more deals uh, in certain places, not in dairy. So if you're if you're a big fan of ice cream, instead of screaming for ice cream, you're gonna you're probably gonna be screaming at ice cream more so. So uh, and and you noted in your piece that I read here, and I thought it was an interesting topic, is that we're paying uh, the consumers paying higher prices for certain items. Let's say dairy. Are, are we getting passed on the increase in, in price for inefficiencies in some of these industries? And is that happening? Oh, probably. Of course, yes. Uh, there's, uh, I mean, in dairy in particular, I'm not sure because it, it is a really tight industry. Uh, most plants are at capacity, really. And so they're producing what they need. And margins are so, so low uh, in food. Food is really high volume, low margin business. So obviously, there's not much room uh, to play around. Uh, my, my, my concern has always been like stop sales or pause sales, as we saw with Frito-Lay and Loblaws. Basically, Frito-Lay rocking away from a client because they couldn't agree on prices. That's what food inflation does when it's too high. Uh, when market conditions are unpredictable, they can't commit to a six-month time frame, for example. Well, a stop sale in dairy would be disastrous because you would lead to milk dumping, millions and millions of liters of milk dumping. So it hasn't happened so far. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it wouldn't happen. Uh, I, I know that there's a lot of pressure on grocers and on processors right now. You mentioned before there that there's certain items that are definitely 
you know, higher inflated than others. Is there anything that is any products at the store that have been insulated through this process? Well, actually, it's it's funny you ask. I mean, since December, I've been looking at some of the data in, in uh, released by Statistics Canada. There are uh, there are anomalies, if you will, even though uh, the food inflation rate is at ten percent. Uh, what people may not know is that both pork and chicken uh, are cheaper than in December. So we often talk about things that are more expensive, but when you look at what's going on with meat economics, uh, actually chicken and pork are good deals right now compared to December. So you may want to look into that. There are other exceptions in the center of the store like dried pasta, some sauces. If you look very carefully, there are some products that have been stable. But if you look at the last 20 years, there are actually some products that are priced the same. Bananas, tofu, peanut butter, and flour. So there you go. So if you're into banana bread, Go for it. You'll pay the same price to make one banana bread with along with tofu. I don't know what you would do with tofu, but you, I'm sure you can figure it out. One <laughs> <laughs> uh, one last piece here. Uh, do you have any money saving suggestions for people at the grocery store today? I could leave you with two really important tips. One. Eat what you buy. Uh, I mean, the average household this year will spend about $14,000 on food retail. Uh, and and the average household will likely waste anywhere between two to $3,000 worth of that food. That's a lot of money. Uh, so if you're careful with food waste at home, you can save some money. The other thing I would, uh, I would consider is to trade down as much as possible so you can dodge that food inflation bullet. And what I mean by that is just look for other brands. And, and private labels, to be honest, are, are, are actually becoming more popular. Uh, sales, food sales at dollar stores have increased by 18% since March. So you can't buy everything at, 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 at dollar stores, but you can, you can buy the same products at dollar stores. You can buy at grocery stores, but half the price sometimes. Lots of conversions out West, by the way. Lots of grocers are actually converting regular stores into discount stores. And I would take, can't take advantage of that because you can save anywhere between 30 to 52%, depending on what you buy, but you can save a lot by just changing address. Wow. So, okay, just be, be a little bit selective. So, Okay, that's amazing. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Sylvan, and giving us some detail on a topic that many people have been, you know, concerned about in dealing with. And I wanted to thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. It is not tax season yet, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking about it. Many markets are down this so far this year and there's been a lot of chit chat about tax loss selling so we brought on a tax expert to discuss tax loss selling and how that are we how we are to navigate that Jamie Gollenbach managing director of tax and estate planning at CIBC thanks for joining us Jamie my pleasure thanks for having me so it's been a it's been a wild start to the year and you know I don't know that there's a ton of gain out there right now but we do have to start talking about it. I know that a lot of fund managers don't start to think and talk about this or personal investors talk about it till later in the year. But there is starting to be some chit chat because there is losses that don't look like they're going to be recovered this year. So maybe you can give us a high level on 
essentially what tax loss selling is, first of all? Absolutely. So look, this is usually a topic that we talk about uh, in the media and on radio and on TV and all that at the end of the year, like literally in December, because in December you have an idea of what your financial picture for the year is and consequently what your tax year looks like. So typically speaking, uh, you would look at all your stocks and your bonds and your mutual funds and what did you dispose of during 2022? You add that all up together and you see whether you're in a gain or a loss position. And if you're in a gain position, you say, okay, is there an opportunity now to realize some losses in that final month of the year in December to offset the gains and not pay the tax when you file your 2022 tax rate? So here, we're in a bit of a different scenario. And the reason, of course, that people are looking at it sort of midway through the year, kind of in July, is because markets have been down substantially, depending on what you're investing in in particular. We've seen some sectors like information technology and some other ones are down, you know, 50% or more, depending on the individual stock and when you bought it. So some investors are saying, well, maybe now I should do some tax loss selling. In other words, I should sell those uh, investments now, take my capital loss, then I'll be able to use it. The problem with that, I mean, it can work, but the problem with that, of course, is you don't know your net position for 2022. And are you doing something that in the end may not be useful? Because yes, you can use those losses in the current year, but only against gains. So capital losses can only be used against capital gains. If you have no other gains this year, then you can take those capital losses and carry them back up to three calendar years. So that's 2021, 2020, and 2019 to recover any capital gains tax you paid in those years. Of course, if you have no gains in those years, not because you didn't make money, but because you didn't actually sell anything in those years, then those losses are available, but in the future. In other words, you can carry forward them indefinitely, which means there's no rush to sell right now. And that's why it's kind of uncertain whether it makes sense to do the, the loss selling right now for tax purposes. I will add though one thing. In the end of the day, we never make decisions for tax purposes. I mean, it's always a consideration, but ultimately it should be the investment decision. If you've got a stock or a fund that is down and you in conjunction with your advisor ultimately determine that it's over. This is not gonna recover, it's not gonna recover anytime soon. Instead, I'm gonna shift my asset, my money into a different investment that I think has a greater potential for upside or maybe it's a different asset class like a GIC. Now that rates are over 4%, people are looking at maybe getting some secured guaranteed investments, then yes, it can make sense right now to take those losses. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it's very hard to know what your position will be for 2022, uh, still with so many months left to go. Yeah, fair enough. Can you give us a, a little bit of insight on the superficial tax uh, lost rules there because if you are taking a loss right now, right, there is rules to actually attain that loss for tax purposes. And that can, you know, give people some hesitancy and say, okay, if we're going to be out of the market or have to be out of the market, how long is that going to be as well? Yeah. So that's a great question. And it's an issue that comes up, you know, at the, usually at the end of the year, but we'll talk about it right now. The superficial loss rule is basically a rule that says if you sell a stock or a bond or a mutual fund at a loss, then that loss will be a superficial loss if you buy it back within 30 days. Now, there's some technicalities here. First of all, not just you buy it back, but your spouse or your partner buys it back, 
or a majority interest beneficiary trust buys it back. And what's an example of that? RSPs, TFSAs. Um, alternately, if your corporation buys it back, any of these uh, affiliated persons buys it back within 30 days, the loss is denied. It's not lost forever, but it's added to the adjusted cost base of the stock that you just uh, repurchased. So our general advice is if you are selling for a loss and you'd like to use that loss this year uh, to be able to offset other capital gains or be able to carry it back, as we mentioned, to three prior years or even carry it forward, you wanna make sure you don't buy back an identical security. And that's where the planning comes in. What is an identical security? Now, if we use, for example, shares of CIBC and you sell them and buy back shares of CIBC, clearly that's identical. Uh, the next step down, what if you have an ETF, an exchange traded fund uh, based on the S&P TSX 500 index, right? What if you buy that and it's in a loss position? Can you then sell that and buy back a different uh, you know, index fund or ETF? Well, CRI says no, uh, because if, it's the, if it tracks the same index, at least in the Canada Revenue Agency's view, those are identical. And that's where we can start to get a little bit fancy. So for our clients that, for example, have a tech stock or a communications stock that's down 20, 30%, they wanna use that loss, but they still want exposure, they could sell a single stock position in one of those losing companies, buy back, let's say, an ETF that tracks that sector, hold that for 30 days, and then on the 31st day, buy back the stock that they just sold. That's a way of around the rules because you're not buying identical properties, yet you're still getting exposure to the sector of the underlying stock in which you've just sold. So that's kind of the innovative ways that people are doing it. Similarly, if you've got a big blue chip, let's say Canadian equity fund from a mutual fund company A, you could sell that and buy the same fund from mutual fund company B. It wouldn't be the same, it wouldn't be identical, because the weightings wouldn't be exactly the same, the structure, it's a different legal structure, uh, that would probably be okay. It's where you have an index fund or ETF that the CRA considers them identical. So that's where it's really important to get some good advice, either from your investment advisor uh, or even from your tax advisor or accountant to make sure that the superficial loss, that 30-day rule, doesn't trip you up. I think that's a great point that you just made there at the end too, that if you're investment advisory team or your, your who's managing your money is not talking with your tax team, <clears throat> that can be a huge issue. So for our listeners, what's the best tip, you know, and, and how to make this uh, strategy effective if you're going to use it? Well, I think the most uh, tip is to make sure you're coordinated, uh, just you and your advisor, of course, and also you and your spouse or your partner, if you have one, and, and also their advisor. In the example that I just wrote about in this week's Financial Post column, I gave an example that was presented to the CRA at a recent conference where it turned out that the husband had sold some stock at a loss, but the wife had purchased it inside of her RSP. They used different advisors, different financial institutions. They don't talk to each other. And then one night at dinner, at the end of the month, <laughs> over dinner, it was determined that the husband sold something at a loss, which the wife just bought back in her RSP within the same 30 days. And so that was gonna be a problem. So uh, they tried to solve that uh, you know, by some, some smart negotiation in terms of maybe uh, you know, she doesn't sell it within 30 days or something like that. There's some things that one could do that I discussed in the column. But I mean, this is what happens if your team is not all working on the same side. 
Uh, and if certainly if you're not talking to each other. So even even household communication, the CRA is not going to look at that and say, no, you're you're free of that one. <laughs> it's good to know. Um, I, I like the this question too is, is there a difference in approach for individuals versus corporations when it comes to tax law selling? Yeah, look, it's the same issue, right? You, you have a superficial loss rule and that's really a problem. I mean, uh, you've got to pay attention to it. And, and we see this uh, often where individuals have a personal account and they also have a corporate account. Again, the affiliated person rule that I talked about, that 30-day rule, will capture you. So just because you sold it personally, you can't buy it back corporately uh, or vice versa. So same issues, same things you need to be on top of. Very, very important. And this is getting a little bit more technical, but you know, is there an effective strategy of uh, and when to use that in a corporation due to uh, a CDA or the CDA rules? Yeah, so the CDA, the capital dividend account, uh, allows an individual ultimately to pay out a tax-free capital dividend. And that's typically uh, comes from the tax-free portion of a capital gain. So that's where, again, you want to look at your whole tax loss selling because um, a capital dividend account for a private corporation is really the sum of the non-taxable portion of all the gains less the sum of all the non-taxable portion of the allowable losses. So you got to be very careful, right? Because triggering a loss in the corporation, uh, that's going to reduce the capital dividend account. So we often say if you're doing some substantial loss selling in a corporation, you might want to check with your accountant see the balance in the CDA, the capital dividend account, and maybe pay out a capital dividend the day before you realize that capital loss, because that capital loss could put your uh, CDA account into the negative, which is fine. It just means you'll be precluded from paying yourself a tax-free capital dividend till that account is back at zero. So great point. Yeah, I think that that is amazing advice. And I wanted to thank you for joining us and sharing your insight and expertise on this. And I think the biggest takeaway here is uh, communication between <laughs> your household and your team can have an effective strategy if you're going to use these, these rules here. So I wanted to thank you for joining us, Jamie. My pleasure. Thank you. Jamie Gollenbeck, Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC. Taxes are a huge part of building your retirement plan because taxes change as you transition to that next stage in your life. So we'll be talking about these strategies for taxes and how they factor into a successful retirement strategy moving forward for the next potentially 30 years. Join us for our next seminar, Tuesday, August 16th, 7 p.m., live online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Thanks so much for joining us today. Remember, if you've missed any episodes or want to listen again, head to morethanmoneyradio.com. And we look forward to seeing you next Saturday on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.